0: It's just turned four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday home time with Jan Bartlett. Today I'll be speaking with peace activists behind the lines at Talisman Sabre, the Reverend Simon Moyle. East Timorese women or Timor-Leste women in Melbourne for a concert emphasising the empowering of women against violence and other social violences in Timor-Leste. Successful counter demonstration against the far right in Melbourne on Saturday and in other places, Saturday and Sunday. Debbie Brennan will be speaking about that. And part two of my interview with Nick McLennan looking at Melanesia, the Melanesian spearhead group and West Papua. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had another one of those weeks.
2: A week, Jane, listener, when True Blue Aussie Sport almost had its second great white shark, but that shark has nothing on the sharks at the International Monetary Profits Fund and World Profits Bank and the Euro Profits Central Bank, and apparently Greek Supremo elect the vote has realised austerity is good for the masses. Listen to this big-time investment banker who this week nominated the Euro Profits Central Bank Supremo Mario Draghi to pour down as the greatest banker ever. He was just great for the masses, he said. Then he pointed out for him his definition of masses meant market forces, stuffed people. Well, true to his great knowledge of how the greatest little economic order of them all works, Mario was the strongest opponent of giving the draggy, the poor down Greeks any slack at all, because he knows they've been slack. Wonder if he's living below the poverty line and recommending he live even lower below the poverty line for his own good, or for that matter, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Investment Banker, who records Mario's the greatest ever. One of the great believers in austerity, poor, neutral speaker... Bronnie Bash the Socialist Beehive looked more like a European wasp nest, as if shaved off by a helicopter rotor or bashed by a golf club. As she explained, flying into a caring business class party fundraiser at public expense was an appropriate use of parliamentary rorts, because she spent every minute of every day doing her best to make True Blue Aussie a better place. On which we can make one suggestion, but but we won't. But uh, how do you make Tribunal Aussie a better place, Bronny? I work overtime, trying in my neutral way to clear the house of all those anti Aussie socialists. And for that question, you're banished under Rule 99B. Uh, but all we hear in Parliament is the socialist member for whoever, wherever expelled under Rule 94B. 99, B, is for commoners like you. No, no, seriously, poor Bronnie's on parole or probation or whatever, even though everything she did was within the guidelines. I spoke about the workings of Parliament and all these caring business class party fundraisers. All of them, Ronnie. Uh, Well, yes, for example, the pilot asked me how come I was using a helicopter at massive public expense. The workings of Parliament, I said. (laughs) The workings of Parliament. We asked Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, why the caring business class party had demanded that Slippery Pete must resign, had him charged and pursued him through the courts, but claimed the bronny matter was closed. You can't compare them. You can't compare them. They are very different. Very different. A How? The slippery slope was done for peanuts. Less than a grand. In Bronnie's case, it's hundreds of thousands. You can't compare them. And Bronnie didn't rat on the caring business class party. Although, might I point out, as Speaker, she is neutral. As Speaker, she is neutral. So the socialists and the left wing commie greeny media like Lord Rupert of Wapping can't have it both ways. They can't say she must be neutral and then say she can't attend a caring business class party fundraiser to discuss the workings of Parliament to discuss the workings of Parliament when she is neutral. So she could take a helicopter ride to a Socialist Party fundraiser, for instance. Well, well, yes, she could. Bronnie, of course, has long been a trenchant opponent of government waste, excoriating in that delightful way of hers. Oh, no, let's be honest, we're all saying it. It couldn't happen to a nicer, could it? excoriating in that delightful way of hers anyone who would waste public funds on those who still live in the age of entitlement dole pledges and welfare cheats which is anyone on welfare and single mums and parents who want to send their kids to state schools and the sick and the homeless army the list of hangers on goes on well take the sick they're crippling the economy we just can't afford them And if they get injured in some out-of-the-way spot, they even expect a free helicopter ride to their hospital bed or their emergency ward for a few days bed and Tiny and Neutral Bronny and New South Wales Supremo Mike bed tax the poor. No, the only solution is to tax the poor. Uh, But hang on, Tiny. Medicare Levy is designed to pay for the universal free health system free free there's that sense of entitlement again well it's not really free people pay for it through the levy so so if we need more increase the levy and there's the problem there's the problem the levy takes more from the rich and less from the poor The only truly responsible way to pay for health and all those services the bludgers want is to increase and broaden the GST. Increase and broaden the GST. That way the poor can't bludge on the rich. And it does wonders for their esteem when they realise they are being taxed at the same rate as the rich who understand what's good for them. What's good for them. uh, Good for the rich. You're bringing class war into it again. What's good for the rich is good for those whom the rich know what is good for them. But but let me point out, I am not saying we would introduce the GST, because that is a matter for the states. But I must say, I welcome Mike Baird-Tax the Poor's sensible suggestion. The Business Properties Council said tax was an ongoing debate, ongoing discussion. If we do succeed in having a sensible reduction in corporate and high-income personal taxes, then we must start again by pointing out that corporate and high-income personal taxes are destroying the economy, crippling the country, and making True Blue Aussie uncompetitive. Uh, but how could we afford to lower them even further? We must depend more on sensible fair taxes like the GST. There is ample scope for it to increase even further after we succeed in increasing and broadening it for the common good of course. We are great believers in world's best practice. What, like a dollar an hour clothing workers or two dollar a day happy, happy Africans? Exactly, that is world's best practice, very worth believing in. Our only concern is that True Blue Aussie remain competitive, which is good for all of us. This commentator in this morning's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review could be landed with a writ any time now. As the capitalist review pursues relentlessly its campaign that the GST is the fairest of all fair taxes, allowing unfair taxes like company and income taxes on the rich to be slashed, but only to allow True Blue Aussie to operate on the great level playing field of world's best practice competition policy, and of course the poor will be compensated, this commentator praised Mike Baird tax the poor for his suggestion. At least bad tax the poor is landing the ball on the fairway, not teeing off into the forests of left populism like hoo who can't we see the rich flying? Whoo who, of course, our very own State Supremo. How irresponsible to use the words "who, who" and "left" in the same sentence. The president was said in an interview as he first became Socialist Party supremo, when the journalist asked him about his membership of the Socialist Left of the Socialist Party, leading to "who, who's" three times, making it clear he might be a member of that faction. But I'm not a socialist. I am not a socialist. I'm not a socialist. He stated that totally unnecessary. And thrice did he refuse also displaying the naivety of the journalist who could even contemplate there might be anyone approaching a socialist in any faction of the Socialist Party, which, of course, will hold its national insomnia Talk Fest next weekend. They'll stand and carry on with massive excitement as if supremo little Billy Shorten ambition is a pop star as he enters triumphantly, despite what might be happening in the back rooms, and then endorse their socialist credentials by agreeing it is in the interests of humanity to sink the boats. Sorry, no, uh, turn back the boats for the good of the people trying to bludge on our goodness. But that's the problem. It's not often we get honesty in politics and despite all the criticisms of him, full marks to Donald Trump the poor, yet another contender for big US arb supremo who, like his hair, wants to go forward. See where he issued a tweet, "'Make America great again!' with a montage of the flag and his face, banknotes just to remind people he's filthy rich, the White House and marching trained killers, taking liberty, freedom and democracy to the evil peoples of the world. Just this one small problem, the trained killers were wearing Nazi uniforms, No, 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 not the regular U.S. odd ones. The tweet didn't last too long, but more's the pity. Full marks, Donald for a bit of political honesty. And after all, he wouldn't know the difference. Finally, back to state big supremo Who Who, who called for an increase in renewables, opposing the GST, calling for renewable energy. Any wonder this state's going nowhere. The state-caring business class party Fossil said it was important to achieve a balance between non-renewables and renewables in energy sources, uh, such as, well, coal, 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 and and, and renewables, so 25% renewables. Uh, coal, 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 and uh, and, and renewables, so roughly 11 to 12%. Uh, uh, coal, coal, coal. Oh, we can't wait. He'll sort it out. Good afternoon.
0: I think the needle got stuck there. That's Mr Kevin Healy, and that's his week that was, and you can hear more about Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow morning from 9 till 10 with City Limits, and I believe they're going to Ipswich in Queensland tomorrow. Not actually going there, but they'll be talking about things happening in Ipswich you're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. Time is 12 minutes past four. This is the moment miraculous the move.
3: activist activity. Imagine activist. this activist activity. The fifth annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair will bring together an exciting range of independent booksellers, zinesters, and activist groups. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a programme of workshops. Come along to celebrate books, pamphlets, and zines, including radical fiction. The Anarchist Classics, and cutting-edge radical writers from around the world. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking, and to network with like-minded folks. It's free, and we also provide free childcare. It's all happening at the Abbotsford Convent on Saturday, August 8th, from 10am till 6pm, and with an after-party in a squatted space late into the night. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org, or find us on Facebook. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, because another world is possible. The Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter.
0: Talisman Sabre, war games are over for another two years, but who is counting the cost of preparations for possibly yet another war? Not enough money for housing, health, education, etc., but unlimited resources for war and at what cost to the environment. Two weeks ago, I spoke with peace activist and nomad Graeme Dunstan, who took his peace bus to Rockhampton to assist in organising rallies and concerts to highlight the folly of war. This morning, I spoke with the Reverend Simon Moyle, another peace activist of many years standing, and who was one of the Christian activists who were arrested for entering the prohibited area of the War Games. I asked Simon first when Peace Is My Business began for him and who were those who inspired him?
4: Well, I guess for me as, uh, as a Christian, mostly been um, I guess, people of faith and particularly, I guess, Jesus has been my inspiration in doing these sorts of actions. So he's obviously a, a pretty uh, peaceable figure no matter who sort of comes to look at him. So he encourages all of us to be peacemakers. Um, and so for those of us who follow him, that's what we um seek to do and obviously down through the centuries people have been inspired by him from people like francis uh Vassisi down to you know gandhi and uh, dorothy day dr king so many others so uh, i guess we stand in that that tradition of active nonviolence
0: what was your first action of nonviolence that's a really good
4: question. I guess most of us start, you know, in our childhood <laughs> with, uh, with non-violence. But for me, in terms of it, it being, a, I guess, a kind of intentional thing, probably 2006 at the G20, there was a group of us that went down and spent some time on the street, I guess, in a sense, symbolising those who had been excluded from the table at that time. So we're wanting to say, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who are not being included as part of these G20 discussions. So that was the first kind of public act, I suppose. But it was 2007 um, when I did my first act of civil disobedience at Talisman Sabre where uh, five of us actually got onto the, the base and uh, invited the soldiers to exchange their war games for peace games. So we uh, we brought us frisbee with us and, and encouraged them to um, play frisbee uh, instead of, uh, you know, throwing around other more destructive projectiles.
0: And the reaction to that?
4: Uh, it was really positive, yeah. they um, They... Ended up playing Frisbee with us for a little while before, um, obviously, you know, they got the uh, military police and then the the Queensland police to come and grab us. But, um, But we had a lot of really significant conversations with the soldiers, you know, in the meantime. That's kind of, I guess, what it's about for us is the kinds of interactions you can have in those spaces that you don't otherwise get to have because, you know, we tend to be separated so much of the time.
0: And you've been going to Talisman Sabre every two years since then?
4: So I went in 2007 and 2009, uh, and then this is my first year since then that I've been back. But there's been a whole bunch of crew who've uh, been really faithfully going up every year. Um, for me, in the years since, it's been a place called Swan Island off um, Queenscliff in Melbourne.
0: Why Swan Island?
4: Swan Island's the, um, a training ground for SAS and, uh, and ACES and AFP and other other groups. But it's also now a base for SPS soldiers to um, train for what they do. And so I guess for those of us who are focusing on the war in Afghanistan in particular, it was a a really potent symbol of, I guess, the destruction that we're wreaking on that country and other countries around the world, particularly through military means and, and through the kind of terror of things like night raids and drone bombings and those sorts of things.
0: Were you arrested at that time? Yeah,
4: so there's been a number of us who have been down there in uh, the sort of five years, five, six years since, and each year we go down and um, either block the base uh, or blockade and go onto the base. So there's been, I think, oh goodness, Uh, yeah, well, there's been six years of that, I guess, going on each year and mostly in September. And yeah, it's probably been a couple of hundred people involved in that over the time, some really inspiring kind of non-violent resistance to the war, the ongoing wars around the world.
0: What sort of activities do you get on get up to that, on these demonstrations?
4: Uh, I mean, I guess uh, at the Swan Island gathering, we, we do all kinds of things. We have a kids' program, so the, the kids are kind of involved the whole time in various peacemaking activities. So they're kite-flying, sort of in solidarity with kids in, in Afghanistan. They're, you know, watching peace movies and uh, leaving us on a candlelight vigil to the gates of the base uh, where we remember the children uh, who've been victims of these wars. We also uh, obviously have training times and uh, information nights and those sorts of things so people are really up with what's going on in the war at the moment um, and Australia's involvement in it. But we also do lots of training and stuff like that to to prepare people for the direct action. So the direct action is sort of the main part of the week, I suppose. Make sure that people are ready for that.
0: Have you been to Afghanistan or Iraq?
4: So I've been to Afghanistan, yeah, in two thousand and eleven. Um, I went part of a delegation of uh, peacemakers, uh, international delegation. So there were people from Australia and uh, Germany and United States and other places, and we went. Uh, Primarily to meet with NGOs, but also to meet with a group called the Afghan Peace Volunteers, who are just this amazing, inspiring group of young people in Afghanistan who have basically grown up with war, and and uh, their parents have grown up with war, and they've realised that it's actually not brought their country peace, and so they're they're trying to find another way. So they've been inspired by people like Gandhi and Dr King to uh, try active nonviolence as part of their um, their way of making peace in their country. So. So they wanted to, to get a group of people out to tell their story to and who could spread their story, but also um, who uh, could inspire them and con- to continue in their work.
0: What was it like to go to a country where Australian troops have actually been fighting and, and you've been campaigning against them going there? What was the experience for you?
4: Oh, the experience for me was an incredibly gracious one. We we were hosted by, uh, as I say, locals, and they were just incredibly welcoming. In fact, everyone we met was incredibly welcoming. We we ended up being there for um, the Afghan New Year, which is a really significant, kind of the the most exciting day of the year. And uh, so we're out amongst it, in in amongst the people uh, there in Kabul, and we were welcomed and given places of honour, really, in those celebrations. So. Uh, We went to one of the local mosque celebrations and they brought us up onto the roof and uh, gave us sort of the view of the whole city. And so, yeah, really rushed ahead of of other people who were uh, sort of locals there. So they really gave us an amazing welcome and and all the sorts of, I guess, hospitality that we don't offer to the people who come here uh, fleeing the wars that um, that we're prosecuting.
0: Your latest action was at Talisman Saber 2015. Tell us what that was like.
4: Yeah, so we went up uh, to Talisman Saber in just a couple of weeks ago. It's a joint exercise between Australia and and the US. Uh, this time also Japan was involved and New Zealand as well. Uh, there's a group of three of us. There were 16 in all who um, actually went onto the base, but I was part of a group of three who um, got up to in the north section of the the base where they do a uh, a parachute drop. So these guys fly out from Alaska, they spend 19 hours on a plane and they jump out uh, in Shoalwater Bay in Queensland, just north of Rockhampton. And so this had been seven months in the planning, this parachute drop. It was our plan to uh, go on uh, to the base uh, and wait for the parachute drop to happen, at which time we'd uh, wander out onto That space. Uh, So these guys parachute drop and then kind of take the area as part of the the war rehearsals. Uh, So we wanted to wander out amongst them. And I guess in particular for us, we wanted to share the Eucharist with them, the bread and the wine, Uh, the body. It's, I guess, symbols for us of the broken body and uh, bloodshed of of Jesus. But also, it's meant to remind us as Christians of bodies broken and bloodshed around the world and uh, our need to stop that from happening. Yeah, we wanted to to share that with them and to to talk with them about what it meant for their bodies to be broken and their blood to be shed, uh, but also what it means for them to be shedding blood, breaking other people's bodies.
0: And did that actually happen? Were you there at the same time that the drop happened?
4: So we ended up being there. We're not sure whether we we actually delayed it or not, but uh, the the soldiers who found us basically whisked us away as, as quickly as they could and the drop happened very shortly after that so so we're not sure whether we delayed it or whether um we just missed it but uh, anyway we had, we were given the opportunity to to share the eucharist and to say and to have those conversations with the the military police who found us
0: no one talks about the environmental damage of these war games what is the area there
4: yeah it's a, it's an amazing land in fact we did lots of work in the lead up and particularly one of the organisers, Greg Rolls, did a lot of work in the lead up with the local Durumble people who uh, invited us to be on their land and part of our, in our pilgrimage onto the land. Uh, we did a, a smoking ceremony uh, which we were invited to do there. And so it's just mostly pristine wilderness. You know, it's the Great Barrier Reef there, so it's a pretty amazing piece of bush land. And that's one of the reasons we'll we enjoy the sort of pilgrimage aspect of it because we get to go for a bushwalk and a bit of a camp. So obviously, yeah, dropping bombs and um, all those sorts of things doesn't do much good to the environment. And, you know, there's things like sonar and stuff that aren't very uh, helpful to local marine life. It's all, um, I guess, the US military being one of the worst polluters in the world, inviting them onto the Great Barrier Reef and um, into these pristine wilderness areas doesn't help very much. One of the, the things that the US military said recently is that one of the reasons they love Australia as a, as a training ground is that they get to do anything they like, where they can't do that in the US. They can't get away with the kinds of things they can get away with here. So uh, those, all those things are obviously concerned for us, um, but obviously primarily it's the fact that these guys are rehearsing to uh, to kill and to destroy other people around the world.
0: Did you discuss with the Aboriginal people what this means for them? using their land for war preparation?
4: Yeah, obviously they were really supportive um, of what we were doing in trying to, to disrupt it. These are people who have, I guess, been doubly colonised. You know, first of all, they had their uh, they were taken off their land and, and slaughtered in the first wars, of course, in this country, the, the frontier wars. And now, of course, they're having the land colonised again by the military. Uh, so it's, um, I guess, part of what we were wanting to bring to light was uh, not just the wars that are happening right now, but the wars that um, uh, have been going on in that place. And in fact, very close by there, one of the, the, the large massacres that happened was uh, was quite close to where we uh, we went in. So, And one of the places we were invited to go was a, a significant site for those people which they have no access to. So part of what we were trying to do was connect with that land um, as part of building a friendship with them.
0: And what was the consequences of you entering the prohibited area?
4: So we were given the usual kind of trespass charges, uh, Commonwealth trespass. They basically threw everything they could at us um, as uh, being fairly unimpressed with the fact that we'd gotten into the area. But, yeah, trespass charges are pretty simple. Uh, they gave me an extra charge of um, obstruction of a Commonwealth officer as well, which just was because I refused to walk the police vehicle. And... Uh, Greg got um, a charge of approaching defence land with intent to photograph because we'd uh, taken photos on the phone and stuff. So all of these things are pretty stock standard charges, and so others have received basically the same sorts of things. The other uh, 13 or so people who have gone onto the base.
0: What do you believe you achieve by doing these actions?
4: As part of the um, the charge sheet that we get. Uh, they talk about the disruption <laughs> that we've caused to the uh, to the war games, to the, the military rehearsals. And uh, so I guess that's part of what we're trying to do is actually say in a context where China uh, is watching these things between Australia and uh, the US and Japan in a time when China is, I guess, uh, relationships with China are of primary concern. We're wanting to say these... Sorts of rehearsals for war are actually really unhelpful and potentially destabilising for the region, um, and Australia needs to uh, extricate itself from the US war machine, and so that's what we're both trying to put across, um, but also trying to intervene uh, in a way that's uh, safe and which actually reduces harm to people over time, not just to to people who are, I guess, the victims of our wars, but also to people like soldiers who are very often bearing the brunt of, of the wars that we're fighting uh, in our asking them to go and fight for really no good reason for Australia. They're really fighting because of uh, US foreign policy.
0: What more needs to be done to make more Australians aware of what's been done in their name?
4: Uh, every little bit helps, I reckon. I, I think it's, it's about discussing these sorts of things amongst our families, amongst uh, our friends and um, having conversations with people about whether they think that um, the relationship with the US in particular that we have as kind of, you know, almost the 51st state of the United States um, is actually helping us as Australians um, or whether it's, it's actually harming our standing in the world. And I think uh, for most Australians, while they they might feel some kinship, I suppose, with the United States, and they recognise they they need to recognise that the wars that we've been dragged into as a result of that relationship, the wars we've been dragged into in the last you know 15-20 years in particular, have just been disasters uh, for everyone involved, and not just for those who we're making war with.
0: When you return to your community in Coburg, what's the interaction with your community there?
4: Uh, I got a really supportive community here, so um, uh, they've always been uh, right behind the, these sorts of actions, and whether it be this or whether it be Love Makes Away, which is another group who are in particular acting around uh, refugee issues, they're really supportive of, um, of I guess, overt political action uh, as part of what it means to, to follow Jesus. So that's never been a problem.
0: Okay, thanks, Simon.
4: No worries, thanks for the chance.
0: And that's the Reverend Simon Moyle who was some um, up at Talisman Sabre this year and he’s been there before talking about his experiences as a, a peace activist, nonviolent peace activist for a number of years now. And he comes from Coburg just up the road here in Melbourne.
5: I’m Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of the address book.
0: This evening, a night of film, performance and discussion will be held at the Elizabeth Murdoch Theatre at Melbourne University as part of a 10-year-long project of using the arts to prevent violence in Timor-Leste. The project has brought 11 women artists from Timor-Leste to collaborate with Australian artists in breaking new ground for dance, music and film artists. Yesterday, Erica Goldsmith... The lead facilitator of international community arts NGO Kinetic Collective, based in Brisbane, and Nona, one of the 11 Timorese women in Australia for the project, came into the studios here at Thresia. I asked Nona first about the Timor NGO Barfatura, which since 2004 has been involving Timorese in areas of peace building, gender empowerment child protection and conflict transformation.
6: Bafuturu is a prominent conflict mitigation, protection and education provided in Timor-Leste, working to promote a positive future for the, the country. Confronted by the violence experienced by the children in Timor-Leste, Sira James and Leilani Elliot began Bafuturu in 2004. With the support of Joanna Camoens, Joanna served as Timorese director of Bafuturu for almost nine years prior to Juliana Olika Marsal, taking over as director in 2013. When did you become involved and how did that happen? I come involved with Bafuturu since 2007. And what was happening in your life at that time? Before I come to Bafuturu as a volunteer, as a student also, I involved with a lot of activities that Bafuturu provided in Timor-Leste, and I became an actors, more focused for the community theatre. Community theatre in Timor-Leste... What Bafuturu did, like, provided information for people that live in the community areas, like uh, we provide gender issues and conflict resolution through the theatre. Is there still a lot of conflict in Timor-Leste? I might say it's not too much, but it still happen, especially for the young people. They're still using violence to solve the problem. And how does the theatre help? Theatre... It's a great tools to help provide the information for the young people in Timor-Leste. We use theater to share the information how they can solve the problem. We also provide the theater activity, something like education theater for the young people so they can join with us and then explore themselves and then through the working together in the group and then share the information. I think this is very good tools for them to explore themselves, they may suffer in the violence in the past, it's good for them to deal with the situation or experience in the past.
0: Is this based in Delhi or do you go to the rural areas or maybe
6: smaller towns? Well, yeah, it depends on the project that founded and project that we got from the another organisation. always doing the theatre performance in every rural in Timor-Leste, especially for the rural areas. But also in the future we'll do like a hundred of the performance theater, maybe next month. Did we start in the five district and i f- I I'm not sure, but mostly like almost sixty Suku village in Timor Leste. Can you give an example of, of a theater performance? What happens? Uh, before we go into the perform our performance, we start to do the pre and post survey kind of the question that we already prepared, we will go into interview the community based on the, the topic of the performance that we're going to perform. Something like we will know the end of the performance, how people feel and then how people understanding for the topic, and then we will perform. But mostly our performance is more focused on the education, how to educate the community to understand about the gender issues, about the law in Timor-Leste... And so many things that relevant with the issues that we will. Do you involve the community in the performance? Yes. How does that happen? We have discussion with the community after after the performance, especially for the gender issues. One after that we perform, and then we also going to talk with the women in the rural areas, asking about the, how they feel, and then what problem they face, and then what they want to do better in their life, and what they want. To create in the life, so we have discussion a bit about the issues with the women
0: and the theater. Is it for men and women?
6: Yes, because mostly we do the theater. It's not only focused for the women, but we more focus for the men and women. Because example, if we are talking about the gender, supposed to have men because men also need to understand about the what is women's right and what women can do, and something like how to make a balance between women and men. So the theatre more focused for women and men, if we want to solve the problem about domestic violence or something, is supposed to do for men and women, not only for women.
0: Now you've been involved for seven or
6: eight years. How has it changed you? I feel like I'm very inspired in the community, mostly... Seven years I'm involved in the theater. It's not only theater, but filming also. When I travel into the district, like I'm very excited because a lot of people recognize me through the film and also the theater. <laughs> this is something like <laughs> it's new for me, and then how I can continue. I have something like a spirit to continue my dream in the future. How I can make change in the community? How different is it theater to film? For you. Uh, the difference between theater and film. The theater like something like life for the community. the community can see directly, and they understand the action, and they also listen to the word that we share through the theater, because in Timor Leste, so many people in the rural areas, they don't know how to read and write. I think the theater is a good way to share the information because they can hear this is directly. But for the film, something like it's not live because we have shoot and then we can edit and then we can show it. But both are very interesting to share the information and to educate people in Timor-Leste.
0: Now, you're not only teaching women, empowering women and working with men, but you're also working with children?
6: Yes, I'm working with children. We have a program for children. It's we call after-school program. When the children go into school and then they finish the school, when they they get home, so we try to do some activity in this, uh, in Bafuturu, so the kids can come and learn English course and then arts, also doing some of the theatre programme with the kids. So the kids actually perform? No, they are not performing because it's quite hard for them to feel confident to perform. But I think like... For the theatre, it's not only focused for the people to perform, but the theatre also it's a great way to build the mentality of the kids so they will feel confident in the school to talk with the teacher, to talk with the friends, something like preparing them for the better future.
0: So for many people in the isolated rural areas, this would be the, when you come into the, their village or their community, this would be their first interaction with people with theatre or film, would you be the first ones to introduce them to this or would they have had other people there other times? I think they
7: they seen a lot of theatre, mm-hmm. yeah,
6: in Timor.
0: Erica, how mm-hmm. do you become involved with the people of East Timor?
7: I first went to Timor in 2012, just um, during the elections at the time, and I met Nona. I was there doing some dance therapy work we were it was a pilot program for three weeks seeing how dance therapy worked in Timor and whether it was something that the community responded to we worked with Barfatu and I met Nonna and then um, when I came back I was incredibly inspired by Timor-Leste and I set up my own organization called Kinetic Collective and we're an international community arts organization now mainly working between Brisbane and Timor for the last Three years. So yeah. your theatre, your dance. Your... Um, I'm dance. I'm a dancer. That's my breadwinning job in Brisbane is dancing. But I'm also involved in theatre, and the other people in our organisation were all community development and performing artists. Yeah.
0: And your organisation was the one that was responsible for bringing eleven
7: Timorese women to Australia. So we've been going to Timor every year since 2012, self funding ourselves to run workshops, and we really saw a need. We saw how incredible the arts was as a tool, as Nona said, for um, dealing with some of these issues in their communities, but we just thought it was really important that women would get more opportunities in the arts in Timor, particularly because some of the organisations or some of the the arts groups were giving a lot of opportunities to men. Yeah, so that kind of became our focus, especially because we were all... Our group is mostly women as well, so... Through applying for funding constantly in Australia, we didn't manage to get anything for a few years, and then one of the universities in Brisbane picked up the project.
0: That's Griffith?
7: Yes, Griffith University. We applied in conjunction with them, and yeah, DFAT funded us to bring 11 female Timorese artists, and they're all their theatre, dance, film, and music. So, um, a beautiful mix. So um, it
0: was a month in Brisbane.
7: Yeah, so we're still we're coming to the end of our month. We've still got one more week. And yes, yeah, so it's it's called the Feto Hamatuk project, which is like women together in Teton. Yeah, they've been doing all kinds of workshops with about f- 17 independent Brisbane artists and companies. We've been doing daily workshops but also uh, working collaboratively, me and one of the other members of our organisation and the 11 Timorese women on a performance that we will do at the end of the month, at the end of this week in Brisbane.
0: Noni, can you tell me what it's been like that time working in Brisbane for you and the other women?
6: I think when, since I'm in Brisbane, there is like, I learned new of skills through the workshop. Something like very interesting, every workshop is very interesting, inspiring. So I feel like, I will have a new skill and ready to, ready to collaborate with my Timorese woman in Timor to do something better in our country. <laughs> what sort of skill? Mostly about the physical theater, dancing, and also some of the panel, like hearing some of the Australian women talking about the, the experience. This is something like very interesting for me. When I hear the, all of the experience from the Australian women sharing about the gender issues, before I only think that timor women face this problem. But finally, when I am in Australia, I also think that, oh, I know that oh in Australia also, there is like a gender issues like it's also happened in Australia. So it's something like encourage me, I will feel something positive and to do something better. And the problem is not only happening in Timor, but everywhere, mm. especially for the gender.
0: And why would the decision to come to cold Melbourne this time of year?
7: <laughs> Just because Melbourne is such an artistic capital in Australia, we thought it would be great to bring the ladies here. Because as part of the project, they've been going to see shows and performances that wouldn't necessarily tour to Timor. So because it was really about inspiring them more than more than anything. And so, yeah, we thought we'd come to Melbourne and it lined up perfectly with this event and um, Ramos Horta's visit as well.
6: What is happening tomorrow night? Tomorrow night we'll be screening two of films. The other film is about the domestic violence and the other one is about the youth conflict. And also we'll see some of performance that we prepared in Brisbane. So we'll show some of traditional dance and songs. And Ramos Horta is
7: in Melbourne? Yes, he's in Melbourne, and he'll be speaking at the event as yes. well. Yes.
6: yes, yeah.
0: What has it meant for you? Do you believe to to come to Australia? Is this the first overseas trip for you? Yes. How has it been leaving your family at home?
6: Yeah, I feel like maybe this time I need to doing something like learning more skills to continue with my dream. What I have dreamed that. I want to um, make change in my community. So it's very great time for me to learn in Australia during one month uh, so I can go back in Timor and then do something. And you want to keep on doing
0: that sort of work. Do you want to branch out and teach other people as well? Yes. And what about the other women? How are they enjoying the, the time in Australia what have their opinions been?
6: I think they all enjoying the time in, in Australia and they they spend a lot of time to learning I know that they were doing something also in Timor.
0: What does it mean for you Erica to spend this time in Australia with the team where you've spent time with them in their own country mm. but it's a little bit different when
7: it is really different and that was sort of the crux of this project because The original project and proposal was for us to go over there and and deliver this in community and due to the funding restrictions they asked to swap it around and for me initially that felt really difficult coming from a community development background. I didn't know how I felt about bringing them here and like you said pulling them out of their communities especially when they're women doing such amazing things supporting their families and they're really important so it was a big deal. But because they were so interested and they wanted to come and because it meant that they could come to Australia and, and exploit some of our resources, I actually came around and thought that maybe that that was okay and that could work as a model in the future, particularly building ties between Timor and Australia because having them here has been, it's been amazing and people in the community see us because we're such a big group and they ask questions and then we get to talk about Timor and people don't know about Timor, they don't realise it's the closest country to Australia. So I think it's been really good for the Australian community and for these for these ladies. <laughs>
0: and do you have to rely on ongoing funding from
7: government departments and things like that to keep this project going into the future? Probably. It was really surprising to get this funding because it wasn't from an arts, you know, it wasn't from Australia Council. It was a different, yeah, different way in. So we were really lucky because... DFAT, this is part of a pool of funding that you know funds infrastructure and all sorts of and environmental projects and things. So I'm not sure how we will move forward from here, but hopefully we can find a way. Like I said, our organisation has been self-funding what we do anyway, so we, we kind of will continue to do that. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, thank you. You're welcome. And that was Erica and Nonna speaking to me yesterday. And the concert tonight is Conflict Resolution Through the Arts, an evening of film performance and discussion. It's on from 7 o'clock. I believe there are still a few places left. So if you'd like to go, it's at the Elizabeth Murdoch Theatre A. It's located on campus at Melbourne University. The door entry is on Spencer Road off Tin Alley. The closest entry gate is on the corner of Swanson Street. And Elgin Street.
2: Now listen, the annual Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate is back again for 2015. Two crack teams will debate the proposition that Tony Abbott is the root of all evil. Featuring Kirsty Mack, Ali MC, the Minister for Un-Australian Affairs, Morveen Smith, Evan Thompson and Simon Crick. It's a titanic struggle for global comic debating supremacy. Refereed by me, Uh, Rod Quantock, I remembered. Friday, 24th of July at the Brunswick Town Hall, dinner and bar from 6.30. Comedy at 8pm. For bookings, phone 96398622. I'll read that again, but backwards. 22689369. Supporting the radical news source, Green Left Weekly. It's the best comedy debate in the world. See you there.
0: On Saturday, the far right was humiliated in Melbourne at the third counter-mobilisation against Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front, which far exceeded the two previous counter-mobilisations in April and May, and there was a similar experience in Adelaide. Then on Sunday, in other capital cities, the routes were repeated. Yesterday, I spoke once again with Debbie Brennan from the organising group Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, And I began by focusing on the Victoria Police presence at the rallies and the use of pepper spray, saying that there were claims earlier in the day of indiscriminate, unprovoked pepper spraying of anti-racist participants and asked her what she knew about that.
5: I was there in that part of our rally and so what the police did, as you said, very early in the piece was that they just indiscriminately pepper sprayed both edges of our rally. I understand that more than 100 people had to be treated for pepper spray and that they also pepper sprayed where the medics were, so they were affected as well. I find that absolutely not just outrageous, but just totally heavy-handed, aggressive and provocative. They also charged us with their horses and I was in the part of the rally being charged. So they were, you could say, literally trampling on our right to protest and free speech.
0: About what time was this?
5: This was very early in the piece. It was after we had marched from... Street to the other side of the barrier. So we were outside the Prince's Theatre. And so it was soon after we had gotten there and rallied that they charged us with the horses.
0: Was there any warning?
5: No, none at all. In fact, really, before I knew it, I was nose to nose with a horse. And it was just basically having to, to run away. To prevent that so it was very very sudden without any warning whatsoever and as it turned out they ended up just circling you know turning around for some reason with their horses but they chose to charge us while they did it so it was highly provocative
0: was there any talking by the police were they saying anything
5: no no they were just acting
0: what happened to the medics area
5: from what i understand they were there as they as they need to have that safe space obviously to treat people they were treating people but the police pepper sprayed the area even though they had been told that that's where the medics were so they knew they knew that the medics were there treating people and they sprayed in that area anyway and, in fact, I read a report from the medic subsequently that, for example, there was a person who was badly affected by the pepper spray who they were treating, and then that person was affected again by another barrage of pepper spray.
0: Was an ambulance called?
5: I understand, yes, and I think that the ambulance had difficulty getting there, but I can't go into that detail because I don't know. I wouldn't know that firsthand. I do know that somebody was was very badly affected and had to be raced to the hospital.
0: What was it like at that time, Debbie, when the police were circling you and where were the other demonstrators, the right wing, where were they? They were a long way away from you.
5: What was happening was that the R counter rally, we were split into two sections on either side of the barrier. So where I was and where my contingent was, we were in half of it. Now, while all of this was happening with the police who were charging in, against us and Pepper spraying, we were, of course, keeping together in a disciplined way where the marshals were very, very actively informing us of what was happening but also telling us what we needed to do. So we were following their instructions. So we were, for a lot of that time, linking arms because we also knew from the marshals that the United Patriots Front was on their way and they were going to try to break through our picket to join the reclaim australia rally now by that time reclaim australia had been escorted into the barriered area outside parliament house so that they could hold their rally so the police while they were doing what they were doing to us they were then escorting reclaim australia Ultimately, the United Front people, United Patriots Front people, I should say, when they arrived, they were being escorted. So there were sections of our linked arms that the United Patriots Front couldn't break through. So the police intervened and make sure made sure that they could get through. So again, they were escorted, both Reclaim Australia and United Patriots Front into the rally area and then of course when their rally had to end because we were drowning them out they couldn't be heard they retreated and the police again escorted their retreat as they've done before
0: done before that day or done before at other demonstrations
5: done at other demonstrations so in other words on april 4th we saw that happen that's in federation square and we also saw that happen on May 31st in Richmond where the police tried to allow them a corridor to reach the Richmond Town Hall steps, but we evicted them. We, we forced the United Patriots Front back, so the police kettled the United Patriots Front to keep them safe. Basically, they were surrounded by police for their own safety, as opposed to us.
0: I noticed after the rally, too, that the police were escorting those demonstrators out of the city.
5: Uh, Yes, exactly. And um, I remember in times past, I recall when community action repelled the national action the fascists back then this is going back about 20 years ago that we repelled them from the brunswick town hall steps and the police escorted them on their retreat to the train so that's what police do so police are basically there to protect the far right and the fascists we see this every single time
0: and there is a photo on facebook of a a police physically interacting with one of the demonstrators. Could you describe that photo?
5: Are you referring to the high five? I am. Yes. Well, basically, it's a photo of a police officer high-fiving a fascist, and it was in front of Parliament House, and I think that that photo, that image, speaks volumes.
0: Did anyone else see any other examples of of
5: this? Well, maybe others did. I certainly didn't where I was because we weren't close enough to that area to see that kind of interaction. But, um, you know, whether it was a a high five or a putting all of their forces, using all of their forces against them to create that freed up space for the fascists To me, it's pretty much amounts to the same thing.
0: The media. Are you surprised the way the media covered it?
5: No, no, I'm not surprised. In fact, I think when we look at the conduct of the police and the conduct of the media, then what we're really seeing is that the state authorities, authorities, the powers that be, are there to give the fascists their quote, unquote, free speech, but at the same time muzzling those of us who have the right to free speech, but we also have the responsibility to drown out those ideas. So the mainstream media, in that week leading up to July 18th, were spreading the scaremongering with the idea of scaring people away. So the idea of scaring people away from from joining the counter rally, it didn't work, of course, because we were out there in force. But then, of course, to watch the media coverage of the rally, it was predictable but still outrageous to watch because their whole purpose is to be demonizing the bulk of the population that doesn't want the fascists in our streets and demonizing those who organize to to make that voice and portraying us as a bunch of balaclava violent hotheads. And to have the media give the voice to the commissioner of police who was accusing us of being violent, he was saying that both sides have very hardened, violent people, but he was effectively really aiming that at us. I think that that really is telling us what role the, the mainstream media is playing.
0: There were demonstrations over the weekend in just about every capital city. Yes. The question I'm asking is, if you got an answer, why so few of the far right turned up at all those demonstrations?
5: Yes, I think that it is showing our success because the far right, and they they worked hard. They worked really, really hard to mobilize their big numbers, and they failed. And in fact, in Melbourne, half of them came down from Sydney, and then they went back to Sydney for the rally next day. So the far right... And the neo-Nazis are not mobilizing, and they're not mobilizing because the counter-mobilizing that's been going on since April has been very successful. So I really see that as a sign of our success because our purpose, the reason we have to be countering them every single time, is to stop them from being able to build a movement, to recruit people and build a movement. They're not recruiting people. And the other good part of it is that in all of the reports from all of our cities, as far as I can tell, that our numbers have increased. So even in places like Canberra, for example, that didn't have many in April, they far outnumbered the fascists. So it's been the same story of ratios of, well, we were like 30 to 1. In other places, they were 5 to 1. In Adelaide, they were twice as many. And so the counter-mobilizing is actually growing. That's very, very positive.
0: It's also noticeable the number of police that they put on these.
5: Yes, you're, you're right. Exactly. Because... In Melbourne, it's said that there were over 400 of them. I saw the coverage of Adelaide, and Adelaide happened the same day on Saturday as well. And I don't know how many police were there, but they were using the same tactics against the anti-fascists. They were pepper spraying them, too. They were out there in large numbers, as you say, and they were also using the same tactics, variations of the same tactics to protect the fascists from the counter-demonstrators.
0: Are you aware of how many anti-fascists were arrested on Saturday?
5: I believe that there were three or four arrested.
0: You don't know them personally?
5: I know one personally.
0: Are they okay?
5: I understand so, yes, yes, but treated pretty gruffly. By the police as happens when you're arrested.
0: Now complaining about the actions of the police is the only avenue available complaining to the police?
5: <laughs> well that's the only official avenue that's available and I think that's a very good point that you're raising there in terms of where are our rights. So I think beyond the you know, the, the structural avenues to deal with that. That leaves the other avenue, which is that we need to continue to be very, very carefully organized and well organized to protect ourselves, that is, to watch each other's backs and look after each other and basically continue to defend each other when we are coming under attack. I think that that, that's actually a very important thing because we do need to be very strong on our ability, our our tactics in dealing with police and um, fascists alike because we are dealing with, you know, violent forces. The future? Yes, well, certainly what is staring at us now is that we need to keep building a very strong and connected movement that will utterly defeat the fascists and just make it impossible for them to come back again. And I was thinking on Saturday, when all of this was evolving, that this really, really highlights the importance of the trade union movement to get involved because, well, first of all, unionists were there. In fact, my union, the National Union of Workers, was there with a contingent with our flags, and that was wonderful to see, and there were many other unionists there with their caps and their T-shirts, and we had people speaking as unionists. Because we know as individuals, we're targets of fascists. Whether we be Muslim or a person of color or a woman or someone from the left, we're targets of fascists. But what we need now is for the trade union movement as a whole to become actively involved in mobilizing, because frankly it's the union movement that has the capacity to mobilize our entire workforces, and our communities. So next time, we will have many, many, many more thousands out there facing off the fascists if the union movement were to become actively involved, educate about the danger in our workforces, and just have us all out there.
0: We are talking about the media before, Debbie. Yes. You've been listening to John Fane this morning?
5: That's correct. What did you hear? Now, John Fain was interviewing No Room for Racism about the rally in Melbourne last Saturday. The main line that John was taking, which is really similar to the rest of the mainstream media, was that question about violence coming from our side and portraying the police as being in the middle, a, a neutral force trying to keep the peace. That was that's what he was really pushing, and he was also using or, or addressing the question of the right to freedom of speech in terms of fascists having that right as opposed to us, and portraying our side as denying that, that right. Now, that was very well addressed, actually, by callers, who, um, people who called in to challenge his very little-l liberal approach to this and the fact that he is completely ignoring what the nature of fascism is and the danger of the ideas and the danger of them building a movement. So people address that. And I was one of the callers. I and others were saying that we agree with free speech, but we defend our right and we argue for our right to exercise our free speech and our right to organize to drown out those very dangerous ideas and to stop the fascists from having a platform from which they can build a movement and recruit. Now that's something that John Fain, as with most of the, you know, the rest of the mainstream media, don't want to actually take on board. But it was a very interesting discussion on 774 this morning, because it was really good to hear people call in and really challenge that little-l liberal approach to free speech as though the fascists are not a danger at all.
0: How did he take the criticism? Oh, he didn't take it that He doesn't take criticism
5: very <laughs> well. In fact, he tends to talk over people, but... um I think we all stood our ground in our own ways and we just kept putting
0: our points. The only bit of that talk back this morning I heard was the, the young woman, the medic who'd been pepper sprayed and I didn't think she got a very good hearing.
5: That's right because he does, he does cut people off and he does not allow contradictory views something that actually contradicts the position he's trying to put. And again, what he was trying to do this morning was to put the position that the police were trying to keep the peace between two violent, well, apparently we were the more violent, dangerous ones, the way John was approaching it, but that was his purpose, and to really be putting the focus on the right of Reclaim Australia and United Patriots Front to hold a rally and us peacefully in his word j- just peacefully standing there basically
0: Is there anything else you'd like to say Deb?
5: No that's about it and rest assured that the, the organizing groups campaign against racism and fascism which, um, which I'm involved in who worked with No Room for Racism that we are going to be, well, we're going to continue to be organising for the future mobilisations.
0: And that indeed was Debbie Brennan talking about the, the rally last Saturday. And you'll listen to Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR.
6: 3CR are
0: selling Kafir Palestinian scarves in support the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3 slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. On the program last week, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan spoke about the description Melanesia, the recent Melanesian spearhead group meeting in Solomon Islands and the granting of observer status at that meeting in Honiara for the United Liberation Movement for West Papua. Now, the final part of my interview with Nick. What was the role of Jakarta at the meetings? There's
1: a big Indonesian delegation there. And indeed, Indonesia had a significant win where they upgraded their status from observers at the MSG to what's called associate members. It's a newly created category. Um, essentially, they... they get to sit in the meetings but they don't get to vote they don't they're not full members of the MSG but it's a reflection of the growing strategic interest in Indonesia has to build links with the Pacific Islands and uh, we've seen a much more active Indonesian diplomacy and it's driven by these two elements firstly the concern about the growing West Papua nationalist movement and uh, West Papua being given not full membership but observer status in the MSG is a significant diplomatic breakthrough. I interviewed Dr Mote, the the Secretary-General of the United Liberation Movement a few days before the summit and I said, what if they don't give you full membership? What if they give you uh, observer status? And he said... We'd prefer full membership, but I'll take it. (laughs) And that's their sense. This is a step. This is a process. And although they're disappointed that Indonesia has been given an upgraded status, uh, they're disappointed that they didn't get full membership. They have a seat at the table. As Dr Motto said, we have a foot in the door and we're not going away.
0: Just explain once again, Nick, why Indonesia is part of a, a group of Melanesians.
1: Well, the Indonesian government argues that they have more Melanesians than the rest of Melanesia. Um, Because they have West Papua. Technically. Well, also some of the other provinces, Moluku, North Moluku, East Nusa Tunguru, have populations that are Christian and ethnically Melanesian. This Melanesian construct, as I said right at the beginning, was a construct of a colonial mind, the black peoples. Um, You know, it's a racist concept in one sense that it... And it's an artificial concept in that there are enormous diversity in the peoples of Papua New Guinea, of West Papua, highlanders, lowlanders, coastals. Um, There's 860 language groups in PNG alone, dozens more in the rest of Melanesia. It's a very diverse group. And the Indonesians argue, I think, foolishly on their part that they are a Melanesian in a nation. As the Chupu ceremony, the welcome ceremony was held at the Solomon Islands National Museum and they carried in the pigs. I was watching some of the Indonesians feeling a bit uncomfortable that their Melanesianness is there. And the Indonesians have had a strategic victory. They've opened the door into, into the MSG. But nominally on behalf of the five governors, so of these five provinces, Maluku, North Maluku, East Tenggara, Papua and West Papua, those are the Indonesian administrative districts, the governors of Papua and West Papua didn't turn up in the Solomons. <laughs> um, so they have their own interests to play in this. Lucas Anembe, the governor of West Papua, is no fool. And they have their own battles with the central government in Jakarta. And what we're going to see is this strategic problem for Indonesia. Do they let the five Western, oh, sorry, easternmost um, governors integrate into the MSG, into PNG, cross-border activities... Or is everything centrally run from Jakarta? And I think this is the trap for Indonesia. They hope that by, you know, greater diplomatic presence that the West Parliament will just give up. And that's not going to happen. And I think they've created a rod for their own back because the human rights standards that many people like Vanuatu and the FLNKs and so on will continue to raise will put Indonesia on the spot. And we see this with Jokowi, the new Indonesian president, During his election campaign, he travelled to West Papua and said, we want a dialogue with church leaders, nationalist leaders, uh, political leaders in West Papua. He travelled in March this year again to West Papua and then on to PNG uh, to sign the deal with the Papua New Guineans to block uh, the West Papua nationalist movement's bid for full membership. And in Jayapura, he gave clemency to five political prisoners and announced that journalists would be able to travel freely to um, West Papua. The problem is he can't deliver on the promises he's made. Three days after he promised free access for journalists who'd been restricted for decades to travel there, Indonesia's Minister for Security, an ex-military general, said, oh yeah, people are free to travel, journalists can come here any time. We have to screen them um, to determine who's coming. Um, they're not allowed to travel to the highlands without permission, uh, where the... West Papua nationalist movement is its real power base, and they can't write about sensitive topics. But of course, yes, there's freedom of press. So already, the military and security forces in Indonesia are undercutting Jokowi's so-called peace initiative, dialogue initiative with people of West Papua.
0: And how safe is he anyway?
1: Well, I think he's there for a while, but but he you know he can't deliver on the promises that he's making, and that will fuel anger and concern. The other real problem, though, and this is the fundamental problem for Indonesia and for the government of Papua New Guinea and indeed the rest of the MSG, Indonesia's development model is generating tension. One example, Morocco is the southeasternmost town it's near the PNG border near Australia. It's one of the closest towns to Darwin. And the Indonesians are proposing a massive development project, a development zone of 4 million hectares including a million hectares of rice. So they want to rip up the jungle and put in rice and other agricultural projects, bring in transmigrants and so on. Now, a million hectares of rice, what does that mean for the customary landowners? No surprise, there's massive resistance from the indigenous Melanesian population around Marrake to this sort of land theft, as they see it. And so the very model of development that's being proposed from Jakarta is very large-scale, high-tech, involves lots of movement of people, labour mobility and so on, but the loss and alienation of indigenous customary land. And that's not going to fly. That's going to cause more tension and more resistance, and it's going to feed into this sentiment that we don't need people in Jakarta. And Papua and West Papua are the poorest provinces of Indonesia, if you see them as part of Indonesia. You know, terrible rates of poverty Terrible rates of HIV AIDS, terrible rates of other non-communicable diseases and and poor health, poor infrastructure. The military have run it as a fiefdom and ripped out the timber, ripped out the minerals, benefited from providing security services, so-called to the Freeport McMurran mine. And so for Jakarta to get the military under control to stop human rights abuses is a major challenge. And Jakoi's promised that. Can he deliver? So I think what we've seen with this Honiara Summit will look back in a decade as a very important moment where Indonesia forced its way into the MSG to a certain extent, but the contradictions of Indonesia's policies are now MSG's problems. And every summit, the West Papuas as observers are going to be there pointing out ongoing human rights violations in West Papua. And that discussion will feed from the Melanesian Spearhead Group inevitably into the Pacific Islands Forum and is the debate in Australia. And so, although Indonesia's had a significant achievement by gaining associate member status, by restricting the West Papua nationalist movement to observer status rather than full membership, this game ain't over. And the Director General, I interviewed Peter Farrell, the Director General of the MSG, said, look, this is complex. We have very different interests amongst our own membership about what's happening here, but we're courageous enough to have the discussion. And I think that's a real challenge to Australians, that people in neighbouring countries are dealing with this complex mix of rights, of challenges, of migration, of development, and they're struggling with how do you do this stuff. And these are the poorest countries in the Pacific. PNG, Solomons and so on are very poor countries by regional standards. And yet they're trying to deal with these complex strategic issues in a way that people in Canberra say, oh, we can't talk about it. That's a real challenge for us in Australia, to think about how we link up with our counterparts in the region to support this ongoing discussion.
0: And where does a a new trade policy fit in with what you've been saying?
1: One of the things that's been growing is inter-island trade across Melanesia. And it's relatively small. I mean, Australia is the biggest aid trade military player in the region. Still, Australian investments in the region are significant, and through... You know everything from Qantas to ANZ Bank and others; they're major players. But we've seen significant financial capital from Fiji and from PNG, particularly, starting to invest across the region. So, uh, the Bank of South Pacific (BSP), which is a PNG-based banking system, recently bought out Westpac's operations, Westpac Bank's operations in smaller countries like uh, Tuvalu, Kiribati, Samoa, and so on. So, you've got PNG banking expanding across the region, fuelled by capital from the major minerals, oil, gas processes that are underway in PNG. A number of PNG construction companies are very active and moving into tourism around the region. Lamana Holdings, which is a PNG based corporation. Uh, involved in construction, tourism and hotels and so on. Very active across the region. They just built the new Chancery building that Peter O'Neill um, opened last month in uh, Honiara. The Grand Pacific Hotel and a major hotel at Pacific Harbour in Fiji being built by these PNG corporations. Um, similarly, Fiji's investing in other um, MSG countries. And one of the things that MSG has been doing is promoting inter-island trade across Melanesia. They have a very ambitious uh, target of free trade by 2017. First free trade agreement was signed in 1993 for trade-in goods, but now that's being expanded to trade-in services, um, skilled labour mobility across Melanesia, so a Solomon Islands doctor could work in Papua New Guinea without you know, too many permits and restrictions. They're developing an MSG travel card, so professional people... Lawyers, doctors, accountants, IT workers, and others uh, can move across the Melanesian Spearhead Group area freely with this MSG travel card. So these sort of ideas being developed about economic integration, and so the key decision of this summit is to extend that economic integration into West Papua. And so we're seeing the the sort of discussions about the MSG trade area. I think over time we'll sp- see the promotion of trade across the PNG border, into West Papua.
0: And how will Indonesia deal with that?
1: Well, what is Indonesia? There are Indonesian corporate interests who I'm quite sure would be happy to take their cut in this process. There are PNG and, indeed, Australian business interests who've always run their own game. And so there's a, you know it's quite complex where, on the one hand, there's growing economic integration, but there are still political differences. You know, Vanuatu and the FLNKS are very worried that PNG's interests in this game um, will overshadow ultimately questions about self-determination and about the rights, human rights, of people in West Papua, and they're not going to let that go. On the eve of the summit, I interviewed Victor Tutugoro, who's the outgoing MSG chair. Uh, This was literally the night before uh, the summit uh, where the leaders go into the retreat to talk just amongst themselves. And uh, he gave me an exclusive interview, which was very interesting, because he went on the record and gave the Indonesians a shellacking, said that he didn't believe that Indonesia was part of the Melanesia bloc, that uh, FLNKS gave full support to the West Papua Nationalist Movement uh, as a political movement, very publicly went on the record um, as the outgoing MSG chair, caused some anger amongst some of the other delegations, that as the chair he should have said it in the meeting rather than to a journalist, but um, he was making a point is making a political point that they, there are boundaries about how economic integration and growing trade links across the region should be also in the interests of the people. And that's a battle that we see everywhere with growing trade. You know, the tra- uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership that's on the table now for the Pacific Rim countries, many trade unionists... Uh, Consumer groups, women's groups and so on are concerned about what it means. Doctors are outraged about the threat to the PBS, our pharmaceutical benefit scheme and so on, from the the Andrew Robb's uh, TPP agreement, still a secret agreement um, and so on. Same debates are happening in Melanesia. Who wins, who loses from so-called free trade? And so there are business interests who stand to benefit from the promotion of trade across Melanesia, but there are also trade unions, there are also consumer groups, there are also landowners who say, hang on, who wins, who loses in this uh, agenda? And that debate is... There's a ferment of debate happening across Melanesia, um, just as there is uh, across the Pacific Rim, about winners and losers in this agenda.
0: So they've got till 2017 to sort it out. Is that the story?
1: Well, I said to... I interviewed um, Foreign Minister Tozaka, Milna Tozaka of Solomon Islands, and said, it's a very ambitious agenda, Are you going a uh, timetable. Are you going to meet that? And he said, yes, one word. Um, No, they're very confident that um, building on, as I say, the first MSG trade agreement was 1993, so it's been, you know, some time, and they see real potential to build on that with trade-in services across the Malaysian countries, and, uh, you know, it's important to recognise these are still, by global standards, small economies. I mean, Indonesia's 250 million people, PNG's 7 million, but 7 million and growing, Um, With significant revenues, the real challenge for PNG, of course, is that the the resource curse, the the revenues that come from oil, gas, mineral exploitation, go to benefit ordinary people. Now, that's no way not guaranteed, and we're going to see battles over that within PNG um, as working people, as customary landowners, uh, as trade unionists try and defend their interests against uh, the corporate sector in PNG. So these things are being played out, these sort of uh, debates are being played out right across Melanesia and the political strategic issues about West Papua and about self-determination are played out. The other silence, of course, that wasn't in the communique was Bougainville. One other reason that PNG recognises Indonesian sovereignty over the provinces of Papua and West Papua is they have their own resource-rich province, with a very strong independence movement. The MSG communique welcomed elections in Solomons, New Caledonia, Fiji during 2014. There was no mention of the recent elections for the autonomous Bougainville government, where President John Momis was re-elected. Major debates now, with a five-year window towards a referendum on self-determination for Bougainville. Very complex debates about whether or not to reopen the Panguna mine, uh, Rio Tinto possibly looking to sell off its interests uh, through Bougainville Copper Limited in the Panguna mine to some other interests, possibly Chinese. So uh, Who knows? John Momis used to be the PNG ambassador in Beijing. So um, all sorts of games being played around mining in Bougainville that's underlies this debate about self-determination. And we're going to see that play out in the next few years. PNG's in the driving seat, though, regionally. PNG will host the Pacific Islands Forum this year in September and will be chair of the forum over the next year. PNG will also host the next MSG summit in 2017. Asa Soghavari, the Prime Minister of Solomons, is chair for the next two years. Then PNG hosts the 2017 summit. In 2018, PNG is also going to host the APEC meeting, a first time a Pacific Island country has ever hosted APEC, and that's going to be a huge regional Asia-Pacific gathering. So PNG with Dame Meg Taylor, a Papua New Guinean, as Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum, will have an influence in the next few years and we're going to see PNG driving this agenda. The question is whether Australia interests and PNG interests coincide or whether they differ and whether PNG's interests in trade, in climate and so on differ to other small island states. Some of the small island states are a bit wary about Big Brother PNG just as they are about the biggest brother, Australia, you know, Australia's coal interests, PNG's uh, forest interests are very different to a small nation like Tuvalu or Kiribati. So there's some tensions within the forum and PNG leadership will be sorely tested over the next few years as they advance their agenda through the MSG, through the Pacific Islands Forum and through APEC.
0: And thanks once again to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. That's it for me. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Jonathan is here for Food bite, Food Fight try and talk too quickly but I'll be back then bye for now